out there welcome to another uh edition of the snap no tap podcast with joe cardinal and myself nico's busy working and we have a very special guest today a guy that i got to know several years ago actually he came to one of my seminars and just one of the nicest guys very talented martial artists and law enforcement agent and you know i guess who knows what else but we're gonna find out joe introduce our special guest yeah well it's chuck may chuck welcome to the show Thanks, guys. It's good to be yeah. here. Good to uh, good to see you guys. Good to see Coach again. Yeah, good to see you too. Hopefully soon in person. I hope. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I've been chopping to to get some more stuff from you, Tony, and not only me, but uh, a lot of the guys I train with. They're like this Tony Sacchini guy. We got to meet this guy. We got to. <laughs> he doesn't tap exist. Into that, we got to tap into that knowledge base he has. So yeah, I hope I, once the situation resolves here, uh, which I. I don't want to get into it today because you're here, but it was a bad Monday, everybody out there with uh, my mother. It's taken another turn where no caregiving. I'm not going to get any help. I'm not allowed to leave the house at all under any circumstance anymore. Not even to go grocery shopping. They have me in essence almost under like a house arrest because of her condition until, until something breaks until we can get some sort of aid here. Uh, but anyway, uh, Joe, how did your EMS thing go? And then we got to start talking about Chuck. So, uh, yeah, this weekend was my first in an ER. So you have to work a couple ER shifts and you have to work a couple ambulance shifts. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending how you look at it, it was a, a slow shift, relatively speaking. So there were a few patients. Uh, I got to help and assist a few things, um, you know, I've seen some things that I'll take with me to my grave, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the staff was great. They were very supportive. And so I think that was really kind of a, getting my toe in the water for what it, it must be like. You know, I just have a new appreciation for what uh, ER staff have to go through. You know, I just got a little window into kind of the, the craziness. I mean, honestly, literally some of the stuff they had to deal with and, you know, uh, you know, just hats off to them for what, what, what they do for the community uh, you know, uh, we can't really pay them enough for what they're doing. So, so far, so good. I got a couple more shifts. Um, you know, I'm not at liberty to divulge too much of what went on. <laughs> I don't want to give away, uh, too much of what happened with patient care, but it was definitely a, a worthwhile experience and I'm, I'm still really happy to be doing it. So, um, we'll see. So next Sunday is my next, uh, next round up. So if I make it out of there, I'll, I'll be back. Good. Well, let's get cooking with Chuck May, if you may, because it's almost May. I know. <laughs> well, yeah. actually, it will be May when we, we're filming this on Wednesday for Chuck's schedule. It will be released Sunday, May 1st. May Day, nice. Chuck May. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Nice. There, there must be some <laughs> type of fate behind that. Yeah, right. 
So Chuck, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Chicago, guys. Pretty much lived here, you know, my entire life other than a stint here or there where I've been out doing some training or some serving or stuff like that. But <clears throat> grew up in Chicago, uh, been kind of, uh, you know, was born and raised in the city for the most part, became kind of a DuPage County guy for those that are familiar with the Chicago area when I started a law enforcement career. So whereabouts in the city, like what neighborhoods? Uh, it'd be like, uh, Belmont Cragen district. Oh, it's where I, I used to live. Yeah. I used to live on the West side there. Um, lived, lived in a city till I was about 10. And so my parents made the foray out to the suburbs. So my parents bought a house in 1979. They're still living in that same house today. Nice. And, uh, you know, did the back half of my, uh, my education out here and kind of got started on my law enforcement career when I, uh, you know, moved out to DuPage. Now, when you're growing up, did you do any sports or any athletics? Yeah. I mean, I wrestled in high school, did the football, you know, basketball thing was never much of a baseball player, but, um, you know, high school is where I kind of got into the grappling thing. Um, I played football in high school, had no idea what wrestling was. And <laughs> the school that I went to, all the football coaches were also wrestling coaches. I played basketball through, uh, through junior high. Um, after my freshman season, uh, football season was over, coaches came up and asked me what I was going to do. And I said, well, I think I'm a trial for basketball. They go, no, no, you're going to wrestle. <laughs> and that's how that all got started and just it, it fell in love with it. You know, I think I also stopped growing in uh, height wise in, in eighth grade too. So my <laughs> basketball career was kind of cut short for that reason also, but the wrestling stuff, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it just kind of progressed here and there. I was involved in some martial arts here and there when I had time and the grappling stuff just kind of always appealed to me. You know, I know a lot of football coaches like their student, their uh, athletes to uh, wrestle because it helps keep them in shape year round pretty much. Yeah. And that's pretty much what it was coach. It was, you know, the football coaches had you wrestle in the winter and then run track in the spring, in the spring. Yeah. You could keep in the weight room year round and that's how they, they got that done. So, but it did, it was, I mean, I, to this day, other than maybe a little bit of bo- gym boxing that I've done, the conditioning that I had as a wrestler in high school, unmatched, unmatched with anything else that I've really done. So. Uh, Joe, ask him, well, go ahead. Continue with your line of questioning, Joe. You're, uh... Well, I was just going to also make an observation about your point about the conditioning. I remember kind of having that rude awakening. So I didn't wrestle in high school, which I, I regret to this day. But I, so I trained at the Deggerberg Academy during that time. And we were doing kickboxing, which was, was, you know, it was, well, I wouldn't say it was easy. We definitely worked a lot, but we had, uh, obviously it was at that time, it was like high school age kids and we had some wrestlers come in and, and they just had no problem, whatever we threw at them, they were ready for it. And they're like, gosh, you know, we thought, we thought this martial arts thing was going to be harder. <laughs> and, uh, so that was kind of one of my first tastes of, you know, maybe I wasn't getting everything, you know, that I thought I would be at the training, but, uh, the first impressions of what maybe wrestlers were, were going through, uh, but yeah, so when did you, at what age did you decide you were, you, were you one of those kids who always wanted to be a policeman or was it something that kind of dawned on you later? No, it, it, it well, it kind of dawned on me, the neighborhood I grew up in, there was a lot of, you know, gang activity and stuff like that. And I just always thought, you know, somebody should probably do something about this. And it wasn't something I always wanted to do. It's just kind of something that happened organically. 
you know, as I got done doing things, it just seemed like a law enforcement career was natural for me. I went into it. I enjoyed it while I did it uh, over, you know, 20 years. I enjoy not doing it anymore, um, you know, for a few reasons. But it, it's just it's a career that's it's a short lived career. You do it for 20, 25 years. I mean, it's not like working at, at other things. There is a shelf life on it. So I enjoyed it. It gave me a lot of a lot of life experiences, a lot of training, uh, a lot of practical experience that I still use to this day. But it wasn't something that I always wanted to do. It was something as I got a little older. I mean, I'd thought about it, but it was something that kind of happened. So was it like straight out of high school or like later on that it kind of came together? No, it wasn't, it wasn't so much out of high school. It was probably a little later on that I decided it would be, you know, a good career for me. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a profession and a career that really has to be for the person, right? It's not just like working anywhere else. There's a lot of stresses involved, you know, a lot of stresses on the job, a lot of stresses off the job. You know, it, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to want to take all that all that pressure on and see it through to the end. If you can see it through to the end. So I thought I'd be able to do it. And, you know, I made it to the end. I'm working in the private sector. Got a lot of good memories, a lot of nice plaques and, and mementos hanging on the walls. But just time to do something else. And it, it's not something that you do you know, well into your fifties and sixties, it's definitely a younger person's game. So I enjoyed it. What were some of the things that were that, you know, maybe like a person heading into it, like you didn't expect aspects of the job that you kind of didn't anticipate. Yeah. The things you don't expect are at least for me. I mean, I went into it um, expecting that, you know, you're going to have to deal with bad guys. You're going to have to physically deal with them, legally deal with them. Um, I also went into it, you know, after talking to a few people that have been doing it for a while, understanding that, you know, there, there's, there's home life pressures, you know, you work nights, weekends, you work long hours, you see a lot of stuff you shouldn't see. And I made the commitment right when I started that I would never bring any of that stuff home. What I really wasn't ready for was kind of the, it's pitched as a brotherhood and it is a brotherhood for some people. Um, there are people that I work with that I literally trusted my life to and would still trust my life to, but it's also a profession, right? It's competitive. There are people that, you know, want things that you want, want positions you want, want titles that you want, things like that. So ultimately it's still a workplace. And, and that part kind of caught me by surprise after I've been doing it a couple of years. And that was something that I wasn't ready for. And just the outside pressures, you know, it's, it's probably a profession that's more scrutinized than, I don't know, many, maybe any other profession other than possibly being, you know, uh, a politician. I, I don't know. I haven't run into people out in the real world in my nearly 53 years that no matter who you run into and what their life experience or education is, everybody knows what a police officer should do, is supposed to do, should have done in this situation. I, I wasn't kind of, you know, ready for that either. Didn't, didn't think about that until I'd been on the job for a little while. So it's, it's definitely a profession that's a little bit different from all the others, which is one of the things that I liked about it, right? You showed up to work every day. You had no idea what you're going to be doing that day. So 
that's that's some of the appeal to it. You know, it's an interesting take where you say, you know, in essence, the rivalry or the, you know, they want the job that, or the the thing that you're looking for. And I, I had a friend of mine named Jerry Cronin who um, sadly passed away in 2007, Christmas Day. Uh, he was a Chicago cop for 28 years. He probably would have stayed on. He had cancer and they had to remove part of his neck and, you know, yeah. on, on the left side and everything. But his thing was kind of almost the opposite, where people were prompting him to take the sergeant's test and all this. He was just happy being a patrolman. He he yeah. he loved it. Uh and 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 that was his thing. But believe me, Jerry was a uh hard-nosed guy. Uh you know, because like you said, he and Joe's getting a taste of this now. You start to see things. Yeah, you're not going to forget what you see, right? You're going to carry them around for the rest of your life. And that kind of does things to you. Yeah. And people, I mean, that's one of the things where people that don't experience that type of stuff, you know, you're not supposed to experience that kind of stuff, right? It's just not, it's just not uh, human nature. So most people that end up in the profession grow up kind of, you know, in a normal middle-class, lower middle-class <laughs> household. And as you're growing up, you get this idea of what home life is like. And then you get out into the world and you're in everybody's business and you start to realize everybody's version of home life is not the same as your version of home life or what you think it should be. So you start seeing things that you're not, you know, you didn't grow up seeing most of us and you got to either come up with some coping mechanisms so you can not only deal with it, but keep doing your job effectively and that's one of the things, that's probably one of the primary things that people that don't do that, don't have to experience that stuff every day, kind of think they know how they would deal with it, but you don't because you don't see it every day. The biggest example I use, Coach, is for years I was on a task force where I, I worked child pornography cases, oh. right? Oh, I'm man. a father. I got three kids. You know, you look at stuff that a human being just isn't supposed to look at, at least a normal human being, right? And you got to come up with coping mechanisms to deal with that so it doesn't affect you in other areas of your life. I think I was always pretty good at it. I never had any problems, um, you know, no ill effects for any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But when you see stuff like that and you see it over and over and over, it's not something that it's trauma. It's repeated trauma. And it's not something that a human being is really supposed to deal with all the time, right? Uh, I just, I read a study because I, I stay up on use of force stuff just for the, the law enforcement aspect, the legal aspect, the, the, the martial arts instructor aspect. Um, I've read several studies here recently where it says that most people will experience like one or two traumatic events throughout their lifetime. And a police officer with a 25 year career on average will experience like 3,600. Wow. So it's just something that, you know. That's why it's not for everybody. And there's aspects in the job that aren't for everybody. I knew guys and, and, and gr- women that were fantastic street cops, but say they got put into an undercover unit. Well, that aspect of it just wasn't for them. They just couldn't deal with it. There, there's just, you know, when I was a detective, you know, men and women that were fantastic street cops or fantastic undercover cops or tactical cops would be assigned a detective badge and given a caseload, they couldn't deal with the caseload. So it, it, there's different aspects to it. Some people can deal with some and not others. It, it's just kind of a job. You, as you're going through a career, you kind of have to feel your way through it. 
It's the best way I can describe it. And when I was a field training officer, I used to explain to my trainees, I'm like, look, this is like going in a McDonald's franchise. You decide what you want to do with it. You know, some guys want to sell hamburgers. Some guys want to sell egg McMuffins. Some guys just want to run the playland. You figure out what you want to do with it. I know guys who are great cops. They were in the uniform in the mobile office for 25 years, loved it, did a great job with it, never had any aspirations. That's fine. That's part of the job. You know, other people wanted to do things right away. I had my first detective badge two years on the job because I liked patrol when I first started. But by the, but for me personally, I kind of grew out of it pretty quick. So it, it's it's a career where you can choose some different paths. Um, were you in a uh, municipality, state police, county yeah, police? Yeah, I did. I worked for a town in DuPage County. So I was a municipal police officer, but I was assigned to different things over the years. So I was assigned to some countywide task forces, some some state task forces, some federal task forces. Um, I worked with everything from when I was doing the child pornography and the grooming cases that was done through the attorney general's office here in the state of Illinois. Okay. I was on something in DuPage County called the Major Crimes Task Force. We came out and helped everybody with their homicides and their officer-involved shootings or officer-involved uses of lethal force or anything else that a chief or an administrator want help with. Um, I was assigned to some federal task forces for a while. Primarily, I was a task force officer with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Chicago Field Division here for a few years, and then worked with those them for several years after that. I'm in the private sector. I'm still working with those guys. So I, I got the opportunity some of it was luck and some of it was, you know, the work product that I put out mm-hmm. to do a bunch of different things. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It seems like you had a very, very, a varied, <laughs> it was very varied career, right? It was. I, I, I like, I like to change things up every, every few years and try something new. So. Well, you know what, and this is not, towards you at all but you just it's just it's a thought that popped in my head when you said uh you know you 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 found your coping mechanisms well i've known many 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 police officers through the years however i personally have never known someone before they came a police officer okay i've always known them when they were pretty much well into their career as a matter of fact i dated two uh, uh female police officers and they were not recruits. They were already established uh, too. So for me, I've never been able to tell, because all the coppers that I knew were kind of like, they were great guys. They were all my friends, but they were serious. Like, you know, oh. so I don't know if they were always like that or if they were happy-go-lucky before they joined the force and then through the 25 or however many years they were on the force their personalities change. I can't answer. I don't know that. I don't know the yeah. answer. To that. Your, your personality will change. It, it kind of has to a little bit. I mean, it doesn't mean, I mean, the guys that I work with, you know, and the, the, the people that I work with that I enjoyed working with, you know, we were always grab ass and we were always goofing around with each other, always joking with each other, but you do have to, first of all, you have to be professional. So you can't be like that all the time, right? In certain situations, <laughs> some of the stuff you're dealing with is pretty, pretty serious. You're, you're dealing with crime victims. You're dealing with people that, you know, joking around is the last thing that they need. You know, they, they need 
you to provide professional services, answer their questions, help them out with their problems. So you do kind of have that, that, that on and off switch where, you know, when you're with the guys, you're, you're screwing around when you're with, you're in your professional mode, you're in your professional mode. I always found that most of the guys and most of the people that I work with, it was the same. I mean, we, we goofed around, we joked with each other. When it was time to work, it was time to work. And when it was time to stop working, we stopped working and started goofing around again, you know. Um, but you do have to get, people call it jaded. I don't know if that's the right term, but you do have to get a little bit of that. You have to realize that everybody's not your friend. And that's an unfortunate thing that you have to learn, but you got to learn that. You got to learn it pretty quick. I got two nephews, you know, that are on the job now. One's here in the Chicago land area and one's down in the Dallas, Texas area. When they were getting ready to go, it's the first thing I told them. Like, well, you got to realize there's a whole bunch of things that you're going to have to learn. One of the things you got to learn is not everybody's your friend. And it's a little different than like an office setting or something like that that I work in now. So you just got to know what you're going into as you go into it. You don't wind up with any surprises. And that carries over to your martial arts and street self-defense. I, I, I harp on it not only on this podcast, but probably on some of my videos too, that, you know, when shit hits the fan, you you have to expect that nobody's going to be on your side. Nobody's going to no. be your friend. They're going to be against you. You got to go no. in there knowing that, you know. Right. No, you are hundred percent correct. They're either going to be against you physically. They're going to be against you uh, in the courtroom. They're going yeah. to be against you when, you know, they call you to come and arrest the husband or the boyfriend because they can't, stand whatever the husband or boyfriend's doing at that time <laughs> and then when you got the probable cause and make the arrest you have to understand that they're going to turn on you immediately because that's their husband or their boyfriend so you have all kinds of those scenarios you just had to be prepared to deal with them you know not everybody's your friend yeah you know people view you as different things there's even times in my career coach where i've been out like in a social setting and people ask me what i do for a living and i tell them i'm a plumber <laughs> so i don't have to listen to, you know I have to listen to about how their cousin in South Dakota got a ticket. That's somehow my fault. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. Yeah. You kind of learn that, you know, it might be you or it might be the profession, but not everybody's your friend. Yeah. You know, I, I get that too. You know, uh, when um, like doctors, you know, too, they, they're, they're another one who, you know, people tend to try to pick their brain, I guess you'd say. And then, you know, bitch you complain and it's like hey i'm not your you know i'm not you're i'm not yeah. treating you i'm not the guy who's treating you you know yeah take it up with with your actual doctor so yeah i guess you i could see how you'd get the blame uh for stuff that you know you're not even involved in yeah i and, and you know along along the like the martial arts self-defense use of force lines that's one of the biggest areas probably not at the biggest area you know every time something happens People know what I used to do. I don't do it anymore. I did it for well over two decades, but I don't do it anymore. But if there's some type of, you know, use of force, a lethal use of force or something that looks bad, whether it's bad or not, it might look bad to the average person. But, you know, that that reflects back on everybody that's in the profession or has been in the profession. So, you know, uh, for example, there's a shooting that just took place in Michigan, somewhere in Michigan, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I haven't even seen the video of this thing, but I have people ask me, well, why did this happen? And why would you do this? I didn't do anything. I wasn't, in yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah. it, you get a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, 
the martial arts instruction, you know, people know what I do or used to do for a living. And a lot of people, that's one of the actual draws when people come, you know, to study with me. It's like, hey, I know you've been in these situations, but I also, you know, the legal ramifications of doing this or doing that. And that's one of the draws, but people also know what I used to do for a living. So they go, hey, why would a guy do this? Or I have no idea. I wasn't there. I wasn't in that situation. So, you know, everybody's a little different. That's right. I don't know what they were thinking at the time. I don't know what was going on. I don't know what was said, what was around. You know, videos are, videos don't always tell the whole story. So I do get that kind of feedback, you know. Just Yeah, years of, ago, I, I, I agree. And, you know, I remember years ago, I'm not going to get into the whole story, but let's just say that there there was a cop. This was not a friend of mine, just but, you know, he made he made the comment to me about, well, you know, you're a big dude, you're a big guy. And I'm like, you know what? Stop. Now you're stereotyping me. All right. Now, this was just us talking. Not this wasn't a, a scene or anything. We were just he was off duty and he was just talking. I'm like, no, 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 no. So kind of like with you, you know, he, everybody reacts differently. Well, my size don't prejudge how I would react to a situation. You don't right. know. The guy never knew me. The guy never met me before. So it wasn't like he kind of knew me. Um, yeah. <clears throat> he knew of me because neighborhood cop, you know, neighborhood scenario. But yeah, th- that's the thing. You know, I, I try to tell people in the street or civilians, like for a street self-defense scenario, um, every situation is going to be different because they'll ask me, like they'll see a crime video, something on YouTube. And once in a blue moon, even Joe might ask me, well, what do you think this guy did? Well, you know, first of all, I wasn't, I wasn't there. We're only probably seeing part of the video. You know, I may have handled it differently, but that doesn't mean that this guy handled it improperly. You know, it, it yeah. just depends on his life experiences. and shit. Yeah. And it's, it, it's training too, right? We talk about training and I've learned a lot about, you know, training through all the instructors I've had in my career and in my private life, including yourself. If you train for things, right you might handle things a little bit differently. So when I answer some of those questions, I kind of answer them in generality. So I go, well, you don't know what the person's training is. You don't know what, you know, what's going on. You know, for example, people talk a lot about, you know, how officers are quick to go to a firearm. Well, there's a reason for that. It's, <coughs> it's you know, that's all they've trained in. So, you know, when you're under stress, you resort to whatever your training is. Guys and women that I've trained with over the years in the profession that train in something, catch wrestling, and I'm in, do I promote catch wrestling for law enforcement? I promote that as hard as I possibly can. I tell people all the time to this day, I'm like, I found catch wrestling later in my career. Boy, do I wish I had it from day one. (laughs) It would have been great. Um, But, you know, I go, people will, will, you fall to the, the level of your training. You, you fall back on what you know. So if all you know is to, to pull a gun out of a holster when you're under stress, that's what you're going to do. You know, officers, men and women that have trained in other things, well, they fall back to the catch or the MMA or the boxing or whatever it is that they, they have, that kind of background. Um, I've also kind of seen in my career where when people do train, the stress level doesn't jump up as high as fast because they've been in, even if it's been in the gym, you know, they've been in that situation before they've been training. They, 
you know, things just kind of slow down a little bit and they're a little bit more confident if something does look like it's starting to go sideways, that they'll be able to handle it. And that goes for the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, everybody that's done any kind of hands-on training. You know, the sad part about it is officers just don't train. That's the truth of it. They just don't train. The department doesn't train them. The agencies don't train them. You got to do it on your own or you're not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. That's really tragic. That really should be, you know, I mean, all this, I mean, I don't want to get political or whatever, but all this talk about reform or whatever, if we could just put more money and allow them to have more time, like you said, I mean, just having that exposure to just be a little bit more confident. I mean, it just, it seems like the obvious, you know, an obvious help to the situation to contribute more to that. And I just wish there was more uh, awareness of that and, and, you know, people being vocal about that. Yeah, it's hard, Joe, because, you know, budget, budgets are limited. Time is limited. You know, even if you're going to do it on, we, we, you know, we used to say you got to do it on your own time, on your own time. But, you know, when you get in that profession, you're working day and night, weekdays, weekends, holidays, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And you still got to come home and mow the lawn and, you know, do all that stuff. It just, it's wow. hard to find time, but you have to do it. It's part of the job. You, you just have to find it somehow, somewhere, you know, it, it's, it just helps you do your job more effectively, more safely. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, you know, I, I could not agree with you more. That's, I used to have my own thoughts on it. You know, I'm not going to get into it because they're actually ridiculous, really kind of pie in the sky as far as police things. But um, one, one, one thing I always used to say is, if you have the ability, which is all I ever strove for, to be able to kill somebody, deadly force, let's use that term, with just your bare hands, then you're going to be less apt to, like you say, want to use the gun because you know, it's like when I used to run sprints in high school and, and I'm out for a leisurely jog with some other track guy. I know that I can light them up if I took off running, but we're just jogging. It's nice and easy. It's very relaxed. And that's the same way when you have the empty hand skills where you know you can take this man's life, it's very easy to hold back. But when you when you don't know that you can take their life and you think, you know, you basically know that you can't, that's when the panic sets in, man, and that's yeah. when you start to freak out. Now, so I'll, I'll tell you, Coach, I, I've been in situations where just training in the gym on the other end of it, right, you know that if you get punched – that's not the end of a fight. It, it could be right, but it's probably not going to be. So that, that you also don't get that type of panic, right? Where if the guy immediately touches me, I'm going to lose some fight. It's going to, you know, I've literally been hit by guys on the street. And I'm like, that's it. I mean, that's yeah. what we are waiting for this whole time. So <laughs> you do get that. You do also, I don't want to call it a calmness, but you just get that, that, all right, you know, I've been here before. I know what's going to happen here. We're going to deal with this, and then we're going to move on. And if I do have to escalate it, I'll escalate it. And, you know, that's that's the big thing with the use of force thing, right? you got to recognize a threat and meet it with the same level of force. And then as something scales up or down, you have to realize that you got to scale up or down with it. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the money part of it, right? That's, that's the big call. You got to recognize the threat for what it is and you got to respond to it appropriately. And as it goes up and down, cause it's going to, you got to go up and down with it. And that's, you also get that kind of 
feel for things when you're training because you know how it is you you train with some guys and you're kind of rolling easy or you're sparring and you're kind of sparring easy then all of a sudden somebody gets one in and it gets a little competitive and the pace picks up a little bit and you know you've been there before you know how that stuff is going to go so you don't get rattled by it immediately that's why I advocate everybody should find something and train in it I don't care what it is you know I advocate the catch and the crop because that's what worked for me you know, um, I've also done some traditional jujitsu stuff and it worked for me too, but everybody's got to find their own thing, but they should find something. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who's a retired Cook County Sheriff. He used to be my exact next door neighbor before I moved out here and his, he, I trained him too. And his son is actually on one of my videos. Um, but he was a Tong Sudo, uh, guy his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like you said, that's what worked for him. Um, you know, and then the grappling, when he got, when, when he got to meet me, when I moved in and started working out at my gym in Bensonville, um, he's retired now. Uh, he retired roughly a year ago. Uh, yeah. And from, from uh, Cook County, they have a different setup, 30 years and 60 years. You got to be 30 years on a job, 60 years, yeah. on, you know, for your maximum pension. So he stayed yeah. on for that. But, um, I agree. Everybody needs and even civilians, okay, they need, especially, you know, people who are a little more terrified of things right now, um, they they should do something, anything, you know, even if it's not even martial arts, yeah. even if it's just exercise, going to the gym and losing at 40 or 50 pounds or whatever, uh, that'll make them feel a little more confident and think clearer. Yep, absolutely, or just get with somebody that knows, you know, how real world situations unfold and, and gain some situational awareness. You can look at people and go, okay, that guy's okay. That guy's okay. That guy there might be a problem. Let me stay away from him. You know, that kind of stuff that, that, that helps out a lot. At least I believe it does. I think everybody should be able to defend themselves or be less victims in the world, but you know, you can't force everybody to train. No, you can't, but I agree about the awareness and, you know, hanging out with people like yourself or myself or others that, you know, there's a whole different world than, you know, the sport world, Uh, nothing against the sport world, but you know, that's not what you need. You, you need real world. Um, I just got an email from a guy. I don't know who he is. Never met him, but, uh, uh, and he caught me on a bad day too. He caught me right as after the, uh, um, the county lady left. So I, I was kind of venting about shit because he was talking about meeting me. And I'm like, you're probably not going to meet me for a long time. I'm dealing with my mother and, you know, it's a bad scene. But he even said too in one in the email that um, I don't want to mention the style. I don't want to pinpoint or anything, but, you know, it's not really geared towards reality fighting. And I'm like, yes, it isn't. Right. So um, right away, the guy and I clicked because of that. Uh, you, you, you just have to realize that the you know the difference uh and there is there is a big difference people try to sometimes think there isn't there is and you know we uh in in a crop class we'll run drills and level one the students will just hit pads and stuff like that and they get really good and real comfortable with throwing punches and stuff like that and then we get in level two we up the threat levels with each level so we have one particular drill that we run in level two we call it the eye opener uh, we'll put one st- students will pair up and one will be flat on the ground. Another <laughs> one will get in the mount and they'll be sparring. 
and the person in the mount that has you know a dominant position for their skill level. Then we have a second person come in and grab the person in the mount and pull them off. Now there's two people punching on the person flat on their back that used to be in the mount. And that's the one out of all the drills you run on all the levels. When we pull the students, the students are like, that's the one that lets us see, oh man, this is what this is really like. You know, I got the mount, I'm wailing away, but then all of a sudden the buddy comes behind and starts choking me or pulls me off and I got two people beating on me. That's, that's kind of the difference in, in, in the sport training versus the real world training. There's value in sport training, at least gives you something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you just have to do it, in my opinion, you just got to do what works for you. I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a little while, and it was okay when I was in my shorts and my T-shirt or my gi. But when I went in there with a vest and a duty belt on, and I couldn't do half the stuff because I had a, you know, a double stack pistol sticking out of one side and a taser and a radio sticking out of the other. And I couldn't turn on the ground and stuff like that. Or we get into the small, we do a lot of small room fighting in our upper levels. You know, when you're basically in a hallway where you can't even draw your arm back to throw a punch because your elbows hitting the wall, all that kind of stuff. It just has to be factored in if you're going to use it for real world self-defense. If sport fighting, I know a lot of sport fighters and they're good fighters and, they, are. You know, they train for their their situations, you know, to fight in a cage or whatever. Uh, mine was always a little bit different. I, I like martial arts. Uh, you know, it is, a, I consider it a hobby and all that, but it's, I got involved in it more for the practical aspect because I needed it for the jobs that I had. So, you know, and to this day, I tell everybody my two goals when I was actually working was I wanted to learn self-defense and law enforcement control. And then as I became an instructor over the years, I go, I only want to learn those two things, but I want to be able to teach those two things to other people. And that's still my martial arts goals to this day. Well, you're very gifted. I can tell you that. Uh, One of the things that, you know, I've. It's all that that Tony C training, man. (laughs) I pulled that stuff out more than once. So. Well, you, you're a gifted. Well, the thing is you're analytical. Uh, Okay. So let me, Okay. People out there, I'm going to talk about Chuck for a while here now. So when I met Chuck, okay, let me backtrack. So I've been, when I used to teach seminars, basically I, I'm going to paint with a brush. You, you have two kinds of people. I'm going, to, I'm going to narrow it down. That when you're done showing the technique, and it's, now it's time for the students to practice, there's two types of people. There's the people who are going to keep on practicing until you have to tell them, stop, we got to move on. And then there's the others that are going to practice it two or three times, and then just sit around and watch and do nothing, okay? Chuck's the type that will just keep on practicing, and then the only time he's going to stop is if he has a question. He'll call you over. Wrong or right, Chuck, you know that. That's how you are. He's, he's a, uh, very intelligent, and he's, his brain's always going. You could tell that he's trying to take what I'm showing for a bunch of people, and he's trying to figure out how am I going to apply this specifically for my needs, which may be different than the guy in the corner who's, who wants to use this to win the next submission grappling tournament or boxing tournament. So that's awesome about Chuck. I, I've, I've known that. And, uh, and I, I, met, I knew that the very first time you came to my, one of my seminars. I watch for that shit. You know, I, yeah. I see who's really into it and who's just there just to be there. And well, you're, I, you're there. It was great, man. All the, you know, all that time, training at the gym in Bensonville and at the seminars and that stuff I did use, you know, that stuff came in. It was practical. I used it. I used it out in the world. 
when I, I retired, I left the police department. I worked in the private sector for a while. I went to work for a sheriff's office for a year. And then I left there. Um, but while I was working for the sheriff's office, just one example, we had a guy rush out of a cell as a nurse was trying to give him some medication. And he went up going to the ground with one of the deputies. And I walked up, guy was laying on his belly and I walked up, just put a, a step over toehold on him. <laughs> and I was standing there holding him. I had complete control of him. And other deputies came rushing up and they were just looking at me. They're like, what is, what are you doing? <laughs> I go, it's a step over toehold. They're like, what? It's a what? It's a what? I go, hey, just handcuff him and we'll talk about it later. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then the, the deputy that wound up at the cell door getting tackled and going to the ground with this guy, he had to write the use of force report. He must have called me four or five times that night. He's like, what was that called? Yeah. Well, a step over toehold. And he's like, well, how did you do that? You know, so, and they, but the guys were looking at me like, what was like some kind of magic trick, you know? But it came in handy because it helped me accomplish a task without throwing a punch or without using some type of weapon, even a, a less lethal weapon. Yeah. Didn't need it. Stepped over the guy, wrapped his leg around my, my leg, my thigh, and twisted his leg and had control of him and got him to put his arms behind his back. The stuff came in handy and not even handy. It was practical. It was useful. It was stuff I could use. And I knew that from the first time I got exposed to catch. And then as I studied over the years with a couple of different people, you primarily, I'm like, this, this is it, man. This is it. Cause I'd try systems out, you know, over the years and I'd compare them to what I needed to do at work. And I go, yeah, th this, this ain't going to help me at all. This is kind of a waste of time and money catch wrestling i'm still doing it to this day and i still do it in, in class and i show stuff and people are like wow you know where well, did I you learn that and, and do a seminar for you guys once i said once things settle here uh i keep saying that but it, oh, it, you know how it is you you have family members that are yeah similar thing but no the, the the thing is getting getting the control of your own body before you can control somebody else's. And it's not about learning moves. So many times through the years, people want to see a new hold or you see people on YouTube coming up with holds, holds, holds. Well, that's not the way to do it. It's, it's, it's about mastering the fundamentals because you got to improvise. As you know, no one in any gym ever anywhere, probably on planet earth ever encountered that exact situation that you just mentioned where a deputy got tackled and you're showing up to throw the hold on. See, but you were able to understand the principles enough to say, oh, okay, well, boom, here it is. And that's the secret. And you've already tapped into that. You, you get that. You're creative enough. And that's the biggest thing I try to teach everybody, to learn to be creative, learn to be how to improvise so that you can create on the fly when, when, when the instructor's not there. So that's just you, – a lot of people wouldn't be able to do what you did. Yeah, and I, I try to harp on that with the guys that, you know, I teach because that's how it goes. Nothing is perfect in the real world, right? Right. Two catch wrestling coaches, and, you know, both of you guys have harped on this, lock flows. Why? Because, well, the first lock in the flow might be the high percentage, but you're not going to get it 100% of the time. And that's what happens in the real world. You know, you go for <clears> something <throat> and the guy pulls his, or what, whatever, whatever happens. Sometimes you're not fighting with people in an open space. It's in a hallway or it's in the back of seat of a car or it's in a cell or wherever it winds up being in between two cars in a parking lot. You got to be able to go, okay, well, there's certain stuff that 
I could use in an open space. It ain't going to work here. So let's just scrap all that right away and go to the stuff that does work. And that's, you know, I've been fortunate. You know, I've had good instructors. I've had some really good instructors throughout my lifetime. And you definitely being one of them. Thank you. Um, you know, Eric Paulson being another one. I study all his material. I study all your material. I've got his DVDs, your DVDs. I go to your guys' seminars. I did the private training with you. I've done some training with him. It, it just, if, if, if for me personally, if I see something that's going to help me do those two things, you know, learn self-defense, learn law enforcement control and teach that to other people, then I'm all, I'm on, I'm on board. And that's what it's been with the catch wrestling. But I've also been lucky enough to have really good coaches, yeah. you know, really good coaches that know what they're doing really good coaches that know how to teach people things because you do, it's like anything else, right? It's like having a math teacher. They might know all the math in the world, but if they don't know how to teach it to you, it's really kind of useless, right? It's good for them. It doesn't help me out at all. So I've been lucky in that aspect. You know, I've been able to find some good coaches. Yeah, that's, I've been lucky too. And a lot of people can't say that, you know, they're, they just run into people and yeah. Then years go by and they're like, well, shit, I wasted my prime training with this guy and I could have been with somebody else. But when I make my comeback, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be focusing straight, strictly on stuff that nobody's seen, you know, um, kill shots, just different things. It's, it's a whole stuff that I've held on to for a long period of time. I realize now that I don't have that much time left to share this information and it's information that I, that has not been revealed. I haven't seen anybody else. Well, um, and I want to do that. If I can get through this with my mother, we've got a group waiting for you, coach. Because <laughs> Where I are you at? Uh, Glen Ellen. Okay. So what we do is we teach at the crop school, but we also got a group of guys and, and women. I keep saying guys, just meaning yeah. people, um, a really good group that gets together and also just works out outside of class. And one of the things we do is we've been lucky enough to, we have a wrestling room at North central college that we go to one Sunday a month. And we do some of the grappling stuff at the school. We do the grappling stuff in the wrestling room. Um, we've actually been there. You're talking about uh, the wrestlers. We go over to North central college. Some Sundays we'll run into some of the wrestlers, the, the, the collegiate wrestlers over there, the men and the women, and both of them, both teams are just ridiculous sets of athletes, you know, we'll go in there, we'll work out with them. And they just, you know, they run circles around us because of the conditioning and the knowledge that they have, but it's good. Cause you also learn something from them too. But I, I constantly harp on, you know, uh, both my catch wrestling coaches and I'll walk in to the, the crowd school and everybody's like, Hey, Tony Sacchini, where is he? You know, when's he coming in? Cause they're just dying. They're dying yeah. to, 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 to meet you and, and work out with you and get the stuff. So they will just, they, you know, pay like grasshopper, you know, yeah. uh, patience. I I'm stuck. Yeah. Literally. I cannot leave. Um, now do you, I don't know where this North central college is. I never heard of it. Naperville. Okay. No, Naperville. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. It's out in Naperville. It's a, uh, it's a, a four-year school. So they've got all the collegiate sports and they got a nice facility. And one of our, one of the guys who's a student at, the Krav School, but also is a, I mean, he's had a prominent career in law enforcement. He, he's a retired deputy chief from one department, a retired chief from another department. And he also runs a security company, like a teaching type company that I, I do some training with and some teaching with him. Um, 
his name's Ray McGurry, and he owns this company called RJM Strategy Group that I help him do some training through. Uh, through his contacts, he helped us get this wrestling because we, we, we went over there to teach like a, uh, a self-defense seminar, like a basic self-defense seminar. We're supposed to teach it in the gym. Uh, the basketball teams are working out in there. The guy that runs the facility, the athletic director, took us up and showed us the wrestling room. And we were all like, man, how do we get this thing? Yeah. He's like, yeah, we'll work something out one Sunday a month. And Ray was able to, to make that happen. And we go there one Sunday a month. It's just a bunch of people that get together to work out. It's a fantastic facility. We have a lot of fun. Sometimes we actually run into the collegiate wrestlers there and they'll show us some stuff. And, you know, that's just kind of how this stuff grows organically. You get this good mix of people together, you know, from all these different walks of life. Everybody enjoys working out together. You get some good instructors, some good collegiate wrestling athletes, or maybe even one of the coaches. One of the Sundays I was there, I think one of the coaches was in there, like the women's wrestling team coach, and he was running the guys through some stuff. So it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of one of those things where everybody gets along and everybody gets together and everybody picks something up and takes something away from it. Are you still at the same crowd school that I did a seminar at? Yep. Yep. So where would I be going? To the craft school or Naperville? Wherever you wanted. Oh, I see. Guys, hey, the students are all like, when can we get uh, Coach Tony in here? I go, as soon as he says, it's you know, as soon as he gives me a green light. So. You want to come to the school? You want to come to the room? We'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah, we'll figure it out. You know, that's cool. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let me ask a question now. What, how did you get involved in Krav? In Krav? How did I get involved in Krav? It was something I wanted to do for a while. And Scott Lorenz, the guy that owns DuPage Krav Maga, the school that I teach at, opened his first school in the town that I worked in. And he stopped in the police department one day with a bunch of flyers and dropped them off at the front desk. And one of the dispatchers came and threw them in the lunchroom. And I was actually at, I was off that day. I was at the range, the indoor range we had shooting with a guy who I did traditional martial arts with. And we walked into the lunchroom <laughs> and saw these flyers and we're like, oh, we got to go see this. And that's how that all got started. We just showed up one day and 12, 13 years later, whatever it's been, I'm still around. So Do you know that we've known each other half at least half that time? Because my yeah. gym's gonna be gone five years in July. Yeah. And I've known you at least a couple of years before then, I think. Yeah. So shit, seven years. Yeah. I mean, I I wow. I, I tell people stories about the old Bensonville workouts. <laughs> you know, we'd go upstairs, you'd be on the mats and people would track, you know, uh, metal shavings from the metal shop, and you'd be rolling <laughs> around the mats picking the metal shavings. And I'm like, that was like the greatest thing ever. It was like working, you know, it was like, you know, just one of those things where you're like, hey, man, you look back on it. You're like, wow, that was an experience, you know, so but a lot of good material in that, too. Yeah, I miss a lot of good stuff. I I know, you know, and you should have been with us 25 years ago at the tool and die shop. Oh, Triton was kind of very when I when I was coaching out of Triton, that was that was like our driving a Lamborghini. I mean, you know, big wrestling room and all of that. but yeah, I missed the Bensonville thing. And, you know, it was a, it was, it was never utilized as much as it should have been. Um, Cause I had a lot of ideas, you know, like I wanted to do like a sleepover kind of thing where, you know, we just did a Friday night to Sunday afternoon, nonstop workout, you know, cause I had the showers there and all that, you know, you know, you've been there, yeah. but um, no, see what, what's interesting to me is 
I've I met some old police officers like when I was a young man because I when I was in Cleveland I thought about maybe becoming a cop um and some of the old time police officers they were friends of my grandfather World War II era guys so their martial art experience was basically the leg trips the foot trips you know the combative yeah. army you know military uh stuff in um not really martial arts. Then I met a couple of like, let's say Vietnam era guys, cops, they were into the martial arts. They, they did uh, the guys that I knew did predominantly Kempo. Okay. Um, which you now it, it, it worked for them, you know, uh, but now, you know, there's so many martial arts to, to, to draw from, you know, different styles. And, you know, there's no reason for, and there's schools, plenty of schools. So there's no reason for people not to, not to train in it in something. No. And coach, I mean, the thing that drew me to Krav Maga is I wanted the practical aspect of it because, uh-huh. you know, there's times where you have to draw a weapon or retain a weapon or use a baton or, you know, all that type of stuff. And there's different, all these different scenarios that you have to train for. Well, you know, when I was doing Tang Sudo, you know, roundhouse kicking somebody in the head didn't yeah. answer every single scenario that I was in. As a matter of fact, what drew me to the catch wrestling primarily was the primary type of use of force that you wind up in working in law enforcement. You end up in all of them, all different kinds of them. I mean, I've had guns held in my head when I was working undercover and all that kind of nonsense. But the primary one is wrestling with people. The people that are like active resistors where they're just kind of pushing away and running away from you and trying to avoid getting handcuffed and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as I got exposed to catch wrestling, I'm like, that, I need that too. I got the Kramaga, I need that too. So those two systems put together work well for me personally. The big thing with you or guys like, not you specifically, but when people reach like bad guys, when they're reaching for you, for whatever reason, maybe they're going for the gun. Maybe they're going for just you. Anytime they expose, there's the arm locks ready to happen, you know, yep. uh, and those are illegal. I'm, I'm pretty certain in any municipality, I understand there's issues and there always was issues with, with chokeholds, but we're not going to get into that today. But the point is grappling and transitioning, learning to transition from an arm lock down to a leg lock to a head crank or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the difference. That's how I look at things. When you talk about flowing or I call it chain wrestling, mm-hmm. I don't just chain the limb. I don't go top wrist lock, straight arm, double wrist lock. I'm going top wrist lock to the leg or to the neck, whatever is open. Um, <laughs> and that's what's great for the law enforcement. Or like me, when I used to bounce and do bodyguarding, same shit. People are coming at you. Or not at me, but, you know, at the person I'm trying to protect, man, it's it's like duck soup, man. It's simple to get these guys and tie them up, and then you got them and yeah. I take can't, them away. Uh, I, I should have some of, my, some of the people I train with come on and tell you that they wish they had a dollar for every time they heard me say, take what the guy gives you. You know, don't fight for something that isn't there because yeah. that's I'm repeating, you know, basically what Tony Sacchini and Eric Paulson have taught me. Take what the guy gives you. You know, if the guy's going to hide his arm but hand you a leg, take that. You know, learn some stuff from – and it just 
it, it just worked well for me. I tell people all the time too, and I'm not kidding. I'm like, man, I wish I had catch wrestling from day one in my law enforcement career. That would have saved a lot of punches from being thrown, <laughs> a lot of taser use, you know, all that kind of stuff, because it's just, it's just too effective. Well, you know, that's a good point. Uh, I've said this to other people, not necessarily even just police officers, but when you know this stuff, the, the, the uh, amount of times that a police officer is going to have to use a lethal weapon is going to go down because, you know, they're the lethal weapon in essence. You know, it, it's, just, it's just my way of thinking. I had to learn this because unlike you, you guys, I was never allowed to carry a gun as a civilian to shoot yeah. somebody on the streets. I mean, things are maybe different now, but it wasn't like that in the seventies and eighties and whatever. And I'm glad it wasn't because I don't need some guy that gets a concealed carry permit, never goes to the range and, and tries to shoot a bad guy and ends up shooting an innocent bystander. I don't need that either, you know, but I want to be able to control it. I'm glad that I was able to help, but let me tell you, it's like a mutual thing because, you know, your enthusiasm is one thing. A lot of people are enthusiastic, but a lot of people can't make the mental the mental connection with going, taking their enthusiasm and turning it into something functional. And for those that cannot do that, many of them become frustrated and quit, um, or they they turn their enthusiasm into just becoming more or less a fan. When I think. If somebody's having a hard time pulling stuff off, like you're telling your police officer friends, you know, if they give you an arm, take the arm, if they give you a leg, take the leg, you know, you, at least you're having those conversations with them. Okay. And, and anybody that's in the listening audience or watching this on YouTube, if you have a good coach and you just find it frustrating that you, the shit you're learning isn't working, just have a discussion with your coach privately, pull them off or her off to the side and say, Hey, What's happening here? You know, because um, I don't want to see anybody lose their enthusiasm. You know, I'm sure you were the same with police work. You know, a cop might have had a bad day. He might have had something go wrong. And all of a sudden you see this person like wanting to throw their career away. I'm sure you'd be the type that would stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. Let's talk about this. Yeah, and it's one of those things too, coach, where you have to, no matter what you're doing, you have to know there's going to be roadblocks, right? If it was easy, everybody would do it. <coughs> so when you hit one, you got to push past it a little bit, but you're, if you're having trouble, that's what an instructor is for, you know, Hey, how does, why would you do this? Or how would I do this? One of the things that I don't know if I did it consciously or subconsciously, but like when we were training together, everything you showed me for the most part, I'd go here, you know, first time you showed me a, a standing top wrist lock, double wrist lock. I immediately thought, well, that that's a defense and a control for somebody, you know, oh, weapon grab, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So that's, I try to throw that out there. And, and my instructors have done that, you know, for the most part over the years too. Here's how you do this. If you're having trouble with it, you don't want to see anybody quit, but you also have to hit the middle ground there and go, well, it is a perishable skill. You do have to train it. You know, you do have to repeat it. I can't, you know, as great as all the one hour, you know, self-defense seminars are you're not gonna learn how to fight in an hour just yeah. not gonna happen you know we can teach you some situational awareness and stuff that you can learn in an hour stuff to look out for and indicators but you got to work at it a little bit that, that's why it's something worth having if anybody could just do it on the fly everybody would have it it really wouldn't be anything worth having so i try to stress that 
my instructors have always stressed that with me too. You know, you got to go back, you got to train. I mean, we trained for a long time and, you know, we would repeat stuff. It's not like if I came to a session with you and you showed me a, a, a wrist lock or a toe hold and then two months later we repeated the same thing, you don't go, wait a minute, we already did that once before. Yeah, once. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get anything doing it once. You got to, you know, you got to work on your stuff. So I uh, had a music teacher. As a matter of fact, the guy that was playing the accordion on all of the introductions to this uh, podcast. And once he was like a father figure to me too. And uh, he once told me, I could show you everything you need to know to, to, to develop your technique. This is musically we're speaking in three days, but it's going to take you three years Mm -hmm. to get that technique. Okay. And, and he was right. So it's the time that you have to put in, uh, and so many times in my line of work, you know, via email or through the years, people would always want to be like, show me something new, show me something new. Well, goddamn, you haven't even done the basics yet. Right. You, you haven't mastered the simplest of moves. You're yeah. not, I'm, you know, you can't keep going on and on. You're, you're going to suck. So, and, but I remember Jerry telling me that, yeah, I can show you everything you need to know in three days, but it'll take you three years, you know, to get good at it. Um, and he really wasn't, that wasn't a figure of speech, really. That, that's about right. Uh, you know, it, it takes years to develop technique. Same with us. You know, um, the difference here is what we're doing, you used a good word, perishable. We, we, we have an expiration date. You know, musically, you can, you can last 50, 60 years. <laughs> Physically, what we do, we, we have a short window of where our prime is. And then everything other that, after that is, struggling to try to keep keep the decay from getting too uh, out of hand the erosion uh yeah it definitely takes maintenance yeah for sure yeah and it's also a skill where you know what i i I can work on a stopper toe hold you know for five years you know every day and and be able to put it on somebody in my sleep and then if i don't revisit that for five more years yeah goodbye the rust sets in yeah, I might be able to do it under stress, but I might also not be able to do it under stress because I just haven't done it in five years. You know, that's kind of, I tell people, I'm like, and everybody's pretty receptive. I never really get anybody that's like, no, no, you know, I got it down the first time. I go, hey, you know, even when I'm teaching them the basics for as long as I've been doing something like catch, I'm like, it's good for me too because I'm running through all of my stuff you know, doesn't matter that I've been doing it for however many years, seven years, eight years, whatever it's been. I still need to run through it. I still need to get the feel for that, you know, the position and where it's at. Am I going to be able to get this leg easy? Or am I going to have to fight for it? If so, I'm going to abandon that and go to whatever he's given me. It's just something that needs to be worked on. It's no different than anything else, you know, shooting, you name it. It's, you know, we work a lot on that too. And, you know, there are people out there, not, not anybody that I, train with but there are people out there that go to the range once or twice in their life and they think they can you know just do whatever needs to be done in any scenario and that's not even close to being the truth you know you got to put some time in and if it's something worth having you got to put the time in to get it otherwise everybody'd have it so i yeah again i i agree and and i and i think one of the shortcuts and i don't want to use the term shortcut but when you understand the principles as opposed to being shown a hold 
whatever the hold is and not being explained, not having that everything broken down and explained, you know, when you really think about stopper toe holds and top wrist locks, double wrist locks, front face locks, they're all the same move. They're all gripped the same. Everything is the same. You try to keep those fundamentals functional, you know, just keep everything. It's like a gross motor skill. Um, and, and I think at least in my life or the way I was taught, that is a huge advantage. And that, that's not a time stopper. I mean, nothing's going to stop the, the hands of time from aging me, but just knowing <clears throat> I could be, you know, just coming out of a coma and I would still remember probably how to just keep everything tight, you know, yeah. or lower your weight or whatever, you know, the principles are. So I'm very principle based. And when I see guys and I give them credit for trying to be innovative and creative, when they start doing more acrobatic type of moves, because it's flashy and it, it, it's an attention getter. Well, it's, it's not going to be functional. It's not going to last very long. You're, you're, you're going to be able to pull this stuff off for a short period of time in your life and in a very limited uh, place. So let's stick with the, the bulwark, um, you know, the, the hardcore grunt stuff, because that's going to last you a lifetime. But what I want to do, as I said, when I get back with you guys, and maybe not the first time, but once I get back into a, a frame of mind here where we can get something going, uh, I want to start opening it up to things that just, you know, that haven't been done before, you guys haven't seen, and maybe you've even had thoughts about shit that you'll see, and hopefully I can put it together for you because, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm going to be, I'm coming, I'm going to be ready for it, man. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> we, uh, ah, I miss you now. I wish we were all sitting together having yeah. some pizza and shit. Yeah. Yeah. I can already, my elbows already hurt and thinking about you. Coming <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait till the, wait till other shit's going to, you know, <laughs> so, uh, come on, ask some more questions, Joe. You're the guy normally talkative. Yeah, for some reason, I couldn't get a word in edgewise, Tony. <laughs> Talking to me? <laughs> no, yeah. Um, no, but anyways, actually, I do have a whole other line of questioning, depending on oh. how much time we have. Uh, Chuck, I know you've got to take off at some point, but um, let's take a step back to talk about Krav Maga a little bit, because I think most people who do martial arts are aware of it to some degree or not. Uh, obviously, I know it, it stems from Israel, um, <clears throat> but maybe could you describe, like, is, is there... Is it how organized is it? Are there different uh, lineages of it? So like if I were to tell someone I was in karate, well, there's a lot of different flavors of karate. You know, is it the same with Krav or is the curriculum pretty, is the core curriculum pretty consistent? It's, it sounds like you're able to improvise a little bit and throw some catch in there. So how does it all, I guess, how do, what's the history? How is it organized? What are the ranks? Just kind of lay it out to me. The, the, The quick history is, uh, there was a guy named uh, Emi Lichtenfeld uh, growing up in Europe, you know, back in the uh, just pre-World War II days. And Emi was, you know, living in an area of Europe. He was Jewish. His family was Jewish. And they lived in these areas, you know, when the Nazis started to invade Europe, not, mi- not with military force, but they started making their presence felt. And Emi was a guy you know, the way his history was explained to me, Amy was a guy that was a boxer, a wrestler, a traditional martial artist, you know, a gymnast. Um, and when him and his, you know, when him and his family and his friends would get into these fights, these scuffles with these Nazis, 
he learned real quick that the stuff that he was learning in the sport gym and in the dojo and stuff didn't translate into self-defense. So he came up with this system. It's a very simplistic system. Uh, but, you know, him and his family living on the wrong side of the tracks in Europe in the pre-World War II days, they pick up, they move to Israel. He's got a pretty good reputation at that point. Israel decides to start forming its first military. They approach him. They're like, hey, we need you to come up with a, a training program for everybody. You know, everybody's going to be inducted. So you're going to get athletes and you're going to get couch potatoes. You got to train them all in the same system so they can keep themselves safe. And you got six weeks to do it. And that's how it got actually started. He's a very analytical guy. He came up with a lot of stuff. Krav is, since it started, it, it's, it's got its roots in the 1940s. It hasn't been around long enough for people to bastardize it and have all these different, you know, lineages of it. The stuff we teach does have a little bit of an American flavor to it. And you do kind of freeform. So we do have levels, right? Uh, Krav is simplistic. So we have levels. There's no belts. You don't, you don't have a belt until you get to a certain instructor level. And then you're a black belt. And that's only because Americans understand black belt to basically mean instructor. We have levels one through five, and then we have black belt levels after that. And the levels are different in that they go over different threat levels. So level one is the most common one-on-one street attacks. A lot of chokes, takedowns, sucker punches, headlocks, you know, level two, you start working a little bit on the ground. Another reason that I, I sought catch rusting out is every system has a hole in it. Nothing is perfect. Um, Krab, they don't teach you how to fight on the ground a, a, a whole lot. And they tell you not to go to the ground, and that's great. That's not always up to you. So you you wind up on the ground. Police officers are taught, take people to the ground because you take their legs away, and they can't run, and they can't do all that stuff. So you got to have some comfort and, and some technique on the ground. So as we go through the levels, you know, the threat levels go up. Two, there's some ground stuff, some multiple attacker stuff. Three and four, the way we teach is all your weapon stuff, edged weapons, fire, pistols, sticks. By the time we get to level five, we're doing some judo throws and defending judo throws and doing active shooter stuff. And it just goes up from there when you get into the black belt, first, second, third degree level. Um, but you can freeform it. So going to one Krav Maga school is not going to be the exact same as going to another. A perfect example, I mix a shitload of catch wrestling into my Krav training where it's appropriate, you know, where people can do simple things. You know, I'm, I meld that right into the Krav training. Um, it, it's, it, it's, it's a system that's supposed to be, and for the most part, from what I've seen and what I've experienced over 12 or 13 years now, it is for everyone. It relies on simple movements that only require gross motor skills. So we don't teach any of the spinning head kicks and stuff like that. They're, they're impractical and not everyone can do them. Um, I've actually been an instructor training for the association that I'm certified through, uh, the USKMA, and we've been doing things like simple wrist escapes and stuff like that. We've had small female um, instructors in the instructor classes who go, I can't do that. Uh, I can't, I can't get away. I can't do it. And they've scrapped it right there. They're like, okay, then that technique's out of our system. If everybody can't do it, we don't even want it. So it is, it is adaptive and instructors, just like anything else, have the ability to mix their own stuff into it. Uh, one of the things I mix into the higher levels is I'll mix in some firearm stuff, offensive, defensive, retention stuff. 
based on the experiences that I've had and the training that I've had. So it's, it's, it's pretty good, but it's not, it's not mirror image, you know, of every, every school you're going to go to, you're not going to get the exact same thing. Let let me interject with a question then, if you know the answer, how did Krav get here? Who was the first Krav instructor in America? Do you know, uh, there were some instructors. It depends on who you talk to. People like mm-hmm. this is like anything else. People like to take credit for being the first. But there were some people that either were trained in Israel and came over, and they'll take credit for starting it over here. Or there's Americans that say they went over to Israel for the training and then brought it back. Okay, you know, it could be either or, or a mixture of the two. You know. Uh, the one of the things I like about Krav is it doesn't worry about the lineage, right? Does your instructor know what he or she is doing? Yeah. Okay. Then there's your instructor. That's another thing I like about it too. You know, when I was doing the traditional stuff, you're always arguing about whose whose system of karate is better than the others. Hey, man, is the instructor teaching you something worthwhile? That's all you care about. Then, you know, who cares? Lineage? I don't. I could care less about that. So. Is there like, um, when you get to the instructor level, is there some kind of like national test or recognition, like, you know, standards, or is it, is it kind of like instructor to instructor where like, I say, you know, my local guy, you know, gives me a blessing. So the association that I'm certified through, uh, United States Kramaga Association, and uh, it's as instructors, so we have to go to instructor training to be an instructor. So like level one through five, I took a test at my school and that just made me a student from level one through five. I had to go to the USKMA and get taught by their head instructor to become an instructor to actually teach those levels. And then when it comes to the black belt level, we can't award a black belt at a school under the USKMA system. They have to go to the USKMA. They have to be invited, take their black belt test there, and then they're awarded their black belts. I don't know if you're able to divulge this, but like, what are the black belt tests like? Is that is that secretive or is that kind of? No, uh... no it's not secretive at all. Hell, you could probably go on YouTube and find me taking parts of my black belt test if you look at <laughs> the United States Kramaga Association. Uh, Mark Slane, the, the head instructor of the United States Kramaga Association, what he'll do is from time to time when he has enough people that he'll invite, he'll invite you to a gym. And uh, I took mine at a gym in St. Louis. It's a six hour test. So they run you through everything you learn through the first five levels. And then the black belt material. The thing about crowd tests is um, when you go to take your level one test, it's basically an hour long because you do all your level one stuff. When you go to take your level two test, it's two hours long because you do all your level one, all your level two. By the time you get to the black belt, it's about six hours. And it was a test that I, I've done a lot of stuff in my life. And I was I was proud to pass that test just from a physical standpoint because it was six hours. And there is a lot of sparring, stand up, on the ground in combination. You know, I had, had to, uh, the way I ended my six-hour test was I was put in a cage with a, a heavyweight UFC fighter and had to spar him. I mean, it, it, it was just it's just an accomplishment when you do it. There's nothing secretive about it. The only time people won't talk about crowd tests is because they don't want to scare away students telling them about <laughs> a six hour test. I think when I took that test, I think uh, we all weighed ourselves before. I think I weighed like 227. And then when I weighed myself after the six hours, I was at 196. Wow. Oh, <laughs> Christ. 
I was cramping up. I cramped up at one point doing a, a, a session rolling around on the ground. I thought I tore my Achilles tendon. That's how bad <laughs> my calves were cramping up. So, but at the end, you're like, hey, man, I got through that. So, so like if you went to like, if you were to go to Israel and go into a crowd class, you, you think it would be pretty consistent with what you're seeing it would, here? I would, I would say it would be tougher. I would say it had to be tougher over there than here. It, it's it's tough here, but it is an Americanized version, right? We water it down because 99.99% of the people we train are not military personnel. They're not even law enforcement personnel. They're people wanting to learn self-defense and get into shape. So it is Americanized a little bit. It doesn't mean the techniques are any different, but just the way it's trained. You know, we're not going to be living in barracks like, you know, in the Marine Corps and training every morning for six hours and then training for two more hours at night. That's just not the way, you know, it's done over here. Um, so it'd probably be tougher over there, at least from a physical standpoint. I think I probably have most of the technique stuff down. It would just be the physical aspect that would be much tougher. So it's primarily still military over there. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's all in Israel. They don't, they don't distinguish between military and law enforcement. Everybody over there has to serve. It just depends on where they stick you, where they assign you. So yeah, it's primarily still. I would, I'd have to imagine it's still military over there. Yes, that's true. Most yeah, everybody does serve over there, like yep. a short stint. So yeah, yep. there's. Don't, that there's no a lot of countries are like that. They have the mandatory service, you know. Yeah. So here it, it's more of a like a civilian level. It, it's more of a civilian level. We, I mean, we teach. I've had military personnel. I've had actually quite a few law enforcement officers and agents, but that's not the majority of your students, you know. It's it's people looking for self defense and and you know we do run through stuff we run through active shooter we do all that kind of stuff um, but it's just not a military based system here because we're not all in the military some of us were some of us never have been and never will be so you know we all kind of train at the same level now and and the stuff after the black belt level it's all like think tank stuff. We don't sweat nearly as much. Like when I went to take my second degree black belt test, it was like, a tank. you know, you do do techniques and all that. We spent a whole day on an outdoor range doing a lot of firearm stuff, but it's more of like, that's at the point where you start trying to add to their curriculum. You know, mm-hmm. I bring up catch wrestling stuff. I'm like, look at this. This is Krav Maga on the ground or Krav Maga standing and attached to each other. Right. So it, it's that type of thing. Once you get to the upper levels. Plus, I'm going on 53, and I need a knee replacement. I don't need no more any more six-hour tests. You know, sparring <laughs> with people in a cage for the majority of that. So, I really like that. It is. It really tries to be a not only a practical martial art, but like really full spectrum. You know, like you start, you know, striking. There's grappling and even weapons. You know, so you really yeah. try to. You know, if if people stick with it, they are getting exposed to just about everything. I, I, I guess I'll make a comment. Um, or what my one of my impressions, and I don't like I said it's just stuff through like online TV and YouTube. But I, there, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There used to be this show where those these two guys would go around and try different martial arts around the world, and yeah. they ended up in Israel and they did the Krav Maga. And one of the things that really is stuck with me, um, you know, because one of the guys was an MMA fighter, and they put him into a scenario, uh, a Krav drill, where he was like simulating walking down the street, and the guy, you know, ambushes and runs at him. And he clinches him in a tie clinch, which, and starts to throw knees, which like, you know, in, in a, in a single combat self-defense unarmed, it was perfect. You know, he was, he was going to tear this guy up, 
but the guy had like a, a, a simulated knife and was just shanking him repeatedly. You know, he didn't have control of his hands uh, while he's doing that. And he would have he would have paid with his life. And it was kind of really a very clear distinction for me of like, you know, the difference between sport, even if it's very tough, uh, sorry. A, a very tough combat sport, you know, with a high level combat athlete. If he's not trained to think this guy could be carrying a knife, you know, he, he, he could lose his life to a much inferior athlete. Yeah, one of the things, and I don't like to harp on sport fighters because there's some good athletes, some good fighters, you know, in, in various sport fighting, but it's just a different, it's a different practical application. You know, I tell people, you know, when we're training in the crowd, I go, well, we'll, be, we'll do something like I, that example I used earlier. You know, we'll have one student flat on their back and another student in the mount. So when I'm demonstrating something like that, I'm like, you know, if I was an MMA fighter in a cage, this is a pretty good dominant position for me. As long as I know the guy underneath me is the only guy I'm fighting on a street that's not that's not guaranteed. So I can't camp in this position. I got to do my stuff and get up and I got to, you know, I got to worry about other people. You know, I've been in those scenarios where you've been on, a, on, a, on the ground with a guy in a hallway of an apartment building. And then all of a sudden everybody starts popping out of their apartments. And, you know, you got to understand what's going on. You know, they don't like you because you're the police. They like him because he sells them their drugs. So when these other people get involved, they're not going to be helping me. They're going to be helping him. Yeah. You just have to understand what, what you're training for, you know, MMA fighters, they train and they're, they're fantastic athletes and they're good fighters. And, you know, they train Muay Thai fighters, boxers, they train for certain things. And I just, I train for something different. So, you know, in the Tyson Fury fight over the weekend, uh, his opponent claimed afterwards that Tyson did Tyson Fury did did an illegal move. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not I didn't see the fight. I don't know if he did or he didn't. But that's very key because that's happened countless times throughout the history of boxing where boxers will do a quote unquote illegal move to get the drop on the opponent. So and that's kind of indicative of what uh, Chuck's saying here that. Sport fighting, these guys are terrific. That's, you know, they're, they're high level, they're elite. Um, but they can fall victim to something that happens when it's outside of the rules, something they're not expecting. And that's the thing for the street fighters or street scenarios, you know, you got to expect the unexpected. Um, and one other thing before I had to go feed my mom and I noticed Joe, I, I think you, you mentioned those two kids that travel the world with the mm -hmm. martial arts, mm -hmm. a little bit of inside trivia. Well, you guys, you met Kevin. You guys all knew Kevin from the Tool and Die Shop. Well, Kevin's brother, Jeff, I'm not sure if either one of you had met him. He had died shortly before Kevin. He was younger than Kevin. Well, he dated the skinny kid's mother. Oh, what do you know? Yeah, yeah. They, they, she, uh, they, yeah, they, uh, he dated her for quite a bit, uh, the skinny kid's mother. I, I never met the kids or I only watched the show like once or twice. But yeah, a little bit of <laughs> small yeah. world kind of shit. Yeah. I tell people all the time, coach, I'm like, it's, I call it like mental roadblocks, right? So if I'm working out with a boxing coach, you know, and you go to, not only is a boxing coach not going to teach me to kick somebody in the groin or kick their knees, but when I go to do it, they're going to stop me and go, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And if they tell me 10,000 times, don't do it. I'm going to run into that roadblock when it's time to do it. The perfect example is when I trained Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for a while and I'd be doing some stuff that I learned in catch or in, in, in traditional jujitsu and I'd be say like grabbing fingers, stop, 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 stop. You can't yeah. manipulate a small joint. I'm like, 
I remember one of the first times I trained with Tony Ciccini, him bending my fingers all the way, touching my forearm with it. And he's like, welcome to catch wrestling. So it's just, you know, you just have to understand what you're training for. Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a great art, but I tell people for me personally, I was told way more what I couldn't do than what I could do. And it just, you know, it caused me to look for something else. Yeah, that's one of the things that I always said. There are no rules here. That's the only rule we have in, in what I teach. There are no rules. Um, but yeah, everybody has their purpose. And, and for example, with me, I'm so violent oriented, I guess, kind of like the crowd thing that it's not for everybody. You know, um, they'd rather do the, the softer aspect of it where you can win by pin or whatever. It don't matter. Um, the other thing that I've noticed, I used to be a, a, a historian of sorts, you know, of all martial arts, I used to have a, large collection of books and they're all gone now most of them are gone sadly um through no fault of my own just something happened and um and i really used to dig into the books and read and watch the pictures and read the articles and um yeah there there are there were some validity things you know that i could what am I trying to say? There was some violence underneath all of the mm-hmm. pretty photos. Okay. That if you look a little bit deeper, you'd see, for example, uh, Chinese China, a lot of nice. Now that's not a killing sport or killing uh, martial art, but a lot of the joint manipulations are, you know, quote unquote killer, man. They're nice. Yeah. Okay, small joint manipulations. Um, I remember seeing some old, let's call it pre-World War II kind of judo or jiu-jitsu, Japanese judo, jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu, I guess they would call it. And they would call their moves t- tricks, okay? This is trick number one, trick number two. And some of them were actually pretty good. I, I thought that maybe you could tighten it up. But again, there, there was some underlying reality there, which is what I really liked. Um, I just, because I guess I just never was into the, you know, the, the movie yeah. star kind of martial arts stuff. I was never, that never appealed to me. Yeah. That never appealed to me either coach. Like I said, my, my biggest goals to this day are, I mean, I consider martial arts a hobby, but I'm probably not a martial artist in the hobby sense. Like most people are that are involved in martial arts, you know, my main goals, you know, once again, we're always to learn self-defense and law enforcement control and teach those things to other people. Um, but some of that stuff too, like, uh, another one of my instructors, a guy that I earned my traditional jujitsu black belt through Gil Hernandez out here in West Chicago. Um, he teach a lot of those chin knot things. And some of those I used in the real world, you know, some of those, you know, I was teaching someone the other day when I was in uniform, which wasn't the majority of my career, but I did spend a few years in uniform. You know, every once in a while you have guys do something stupid, like they grab your badge. You know, it's like an authority thing there'd be quick locks up lockups where you get these guys. It's not a legal scenario where you can just start throwing punches and elbows. Sure. You know, you can't, you gotta, you, you can definitely physically deal with this guy, but you can't escalate it past his level of use of force. You got to deal with it, you know, on his level, some of that chin stuff. And then some of the top wrist lock stuff later on, the stuff worked, you know, you just have to know what you're, what, what, what's the purpose of your training? Every, not everybody's, all of our purposes are not the same. You know, some of mm-hmm. us train for different things. So you just have to know what it is. And there are people out there that are martial artists. They train for everything. They self-defense, sport fighting, and that's great. You know, but for me, it was always those couple of things, you know, self-defense and law enforcement control. And now later on being able to teach those things to people. 
Well, so, I, I want to see you coach. I actually want to watch one day, just not even participate, just sit and watch because I'm, I'm certain you're an excellent coach. I appreciate that. I, no, I, I can do. tell. I do. I, I, you know, like I said, I, I like being an instructor. I like passing it along. And that's something I've always gotten from you and from all my instructors. You know, I've mentioned a bunch of names on this, on this um, podcast and uh, you get something from everybody. Right. And sometimes you get one small thing from somebody that's usable. Sometimes you get the only thing you'll get from people. Cause I honestly believe you learn something from everybody that you ever meet in your entire life. Sometimes you'll learn what not to do. Yeah. But like some of the, the people that I've mentioned here today, it's been like a storehouse of knowledge. This is stuff that I have used, used over and over practically. I've used it to train my students and, you know, the four or five names that I've mentioned and right at the top of the list is coach C coach, Tony, <laughs> you know, it's, it's there. If it's there, make use of stuff that's useful. You know, that's what I try to do. Well, we'll talk offline if not tonight, cause I know that it's, we're going to have to wrap this up cause you, yeah. you've got an appointment, but we'll talk soon. Even yeah. it, the three of us will do a zoom again privately, but I, I just want to say to anybody that's, in locally here, Chicagoland, um, reach out to Chuck and, and, and try to hook up with him too, for training. You know, we, we, we also always mention Jason Bender, you know, and Josh Pacini, uh, and, and Chuck Mays added to that because I'm telling you people, he's got the real world, um, experience and stuff. He's, but he's, he's a student of the game. His brain is involved. He's, he's just not an athlete. Okay. It's, it's beyond being athletic. It's the mental, he's got the brain for it. Okay. He doesn't have the looks of a Joe Cardinal, but who does? Yeah. I I mean, who does? And I really got to rely on the brains these days because the athletic part, man, that's going away fast. So, well, he, what I mean is you are a good athlete, at least when last time I saw you, but people who are out there that may not think they're athletic, you don't need to. uh, uh, Chuck's got the brain and he can articulate his thoughts uh, quite well. So I highly recommend uh, people, especially around the DuPage County or Western part of uh, Chicago, go for it. Um, Joe, do you have any closing thoughts? Because again, I always have to you know, you get mad if I don't brag about your looks. Well, so I got I that appreciate in. that. I, I was waiting, Tony. I was starting to feel a little sore, but yeah, you, you pulled okay. it out there at the end and I appreciate it. Um, well, in closing, Chuck, great, great guest. Thanks for all your insight. It was we'll have awesome. you back, Joe. Uh, hey, anytime you guys want, I'm always up for uh, whatever you guys want to do. Oh, so. yeah. Awesome. And, and just how do people find you? So uh, there is it, the, the name of the school that uh, we work out at. It's called DuPage Krav Maga. Uh, there is a uh, a Facebook, an Instagram page, and a website under those names. Uh, we also do some training through RJM Strategy Group. And same thing, website, Facebook, Instagram. And I also, I haven't seen them quite as much as I'd like to since the pandemic hit. But uh, I train and we, we, we do some grappling at uh, West Chicago Park District uh, with uh, Sensei Gil Hernandez. So that's, well, those are email that to Joe and he can put that in the description. Yeah. And then as soon as, uh, as soon as coach C is free and, and clear, we're going to be doing some stuff out with him too. So. Yeah. We're going to get it cooking, man. With yeah. gas. 
Well, thank you again. Uh, and everybody that's listening or watching or and or watching, I want to thank all of you guys as well. Uh, and of course, thank you, Joe. And uh, the, you guys are going to get this released on May 1st. So we're yeah. through another month. Yeah, as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as you're free, I'll start warming up my knees and elbows and ankles and everything. <laughs> take the punishment. So good. All right, guys. Well, thank you for watching, everybody, and we'll see you next week on the Snap and Tap Podcast. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-